Well, let's turn together to Psalm 82. If you were with us last week, then you know that we concluded our study of Mark's gospel. Thankful for the completion that, that, that God brings as we, uh, as we are finished with that study. It's a little bittersweet. But before we jump into another book of the Bible, uh, I do have some, some sermons and some different uh, themes and topics of a more practical nature that have been on my heart as a pastor. And it's good, I think, sometimes for a little bit of a break. And so one of, one of those is going to be reflected in this sermon and the psalm that we will study together this morning in Psalm 82. Uh, some of you have asked me what, what book we're going to be doing next time. And uh, the answer is I, I'm not sure yet. I'm still praying about exactly where the Lord would have us to be studying for for our time and, and, and the next book that we'll study together. But you'll know when I know and when, when we start it. So for this morning, we're going to turn to Psalm 82. Let's go to God in prayer before we read. Our Father in heaven, Lord, thank you that you love us, that you bless us, that you have given us your word, that we would know it, that we would know you through it. And so we pray very simply that you would open our hearts this morning and plant your truth, your word deep in us. God, let it have its work. Let it, let it take root that we would be changed. God, use it to make us more like Christ our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen. Psalm 82. We read it's a psalm of Asaph. It said, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the most high, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. So this is a song, this is a song about the helpless. And to be more specific, this is a psalm about the rulers of the people and their care for the helpless. And it is a psalm in which those rulers are being held accountable for their injustice and their lack of concern and compassion and grace for those who are in a destitute or weak or helpless situation. And so it reflects something to us of God's concern and care and provision and compassion for those in that position. And so, you know, we, we sang just a moment ago, um, the prayer that we often sing for our church, that, that God would guide our church and that he would bless our church and be with our church, that we would be one in doctrine, that we would be pure in spirit and in heart. But one of the verses of that song is that we pray that God would enable us by having the mind and spirit and compassion of Jesus, that the poor and blind would be ministered to. May we guide the poor and blind. May we provide for the needy. May we be ministering to those in, in a helpless and in a destitute and in a weak situation. Friends, if you've been with us for any 
with any regularity as we study the gospel of Mark, then what you know for certain is that the weak and the poor and the widow and the fallen and the broken and the destitute, even if it's according to their own sin and their own fault, they have a special place under the compassion of Jesus. He always had time for them. He was always willing to get dirty with them and to touch them. Remember the leper who he could have healed any way that he chose? And it says very specifically in the scriptures that Jesus reached out his hand and touched him so that Jesus became defiled and broken so that the leper would become cleansed and restored. So that there is this place for the children, the fatherless, the widow, the poor, the needy, the the physically and mentally handicapped, even the spiritually handicapped and those that were possessed by demons. We see Jesus again and again and again reaching out his hand to minister to them. And, And one of my concerns as a pastor in Christ's church and for us together is simply to ask you, do we live like that and minister like that? Does our prayer life reflect a deep abiding concern for the the least of these? Governmentally and socially and culturally, are, are we looking beyond ourselves and our abundance and our prosperity? And are we, are we going with Christ to touch them? Are our prayer lives filled with intercessions on their behalf? You know, I'm, I'm, I am imperfect in so many ways, and maybe you're better than me. I pray that you are. But I have to confess to you this morning that my prayer life is not nearly as directed toward them and for them as it ought to be. And so my concern and my prayer for us all is that as we read this psalm and as we consider carefully kind of the dynamic that's taking place here, that we would learn something about God's concern for these people and that our hearts would be filled with obedience to to go and touch them with Christ. So the first thing that I want us to see is kind of just the setting and what's taking place. First of all, there is a divine assignment. There is a divine assignment that we're given in this passage that we're able to see from this passage. What's the setting? Well, here's the picture. In verse 1, it says, God has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods. And we'll have to talk about what that means. He holds judgment. That is a parallel verse to the last verse, verse 8, if you go down. They're, they're bracketing, if you will, this. It says, Arise, O God, and judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. So that in verse 1, we see God in the divine council according to his divine and sovereign judgment over these things and the affairs of men, it it then ends with God coming no longer from just the divine counsel sort of out there making his judgments, but bringing his judgments to earth. God come and judge the earth. It's a prayer in verse 8 that's offered by the psalmist. So these are in some way reflecting of one another. And so the the vision that we're given, the, the picture that's that we are, we are intended to see is that God has taken his seat in the, in the judge's chair and, and he is in the divine council of, of, of the heavenlies that the hosts of heaven have gathered in the courtroom of God and he is seated upon his throne as the sovereign Lord of everything and he is going to then offer a judgment. So we're going to see a divine assignment The second point is that there is going to be a divine judgment. So we'll get there in a moment. But it's this courtroom scene, if you will. And then it says, in the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. 
Now, who are these gods that he's speaking of? Well, look at what he says about the gods, who he is bringing the judgment upon. The problem is that they are committing injustices against this specific group of people. We'll, we'll simply label them as the helpless. It may be their own fault that they're helpless. It may be in God's sovereignty that they're helpless. It, it, there, there can be any number of reasons. That it's not, it, it doesn't matter. That we see them listed there in verse 3. The weak and the fatherless, the rights of the afflicted and the destitute, the weak and the needy in verse 4. And then the second part of verse 4, um, that, that there is this call to deliver them from the hand of the wicked. So, so what is it that the gods, whatever that means, what is it that these gods have done? Well, look at what he judges them. He asks them this question, how long will you judge unjustly or according to injustice and show partiality to the wicked? Okay, so, so, so that is the problem. That's the error of their way. Whoever these gods are, with a little g, the God... Of, of, of a very God and the Lord and creator of all that is, he, he comes into his courtroom and these gods are now before him and he offers this question, how long will you continue to commit this injustice in your judgment to show partiality against toward the wicked and against the helpless? So the idea here is then that they have not been doing what he tells them to do in verses 3 and 4, which to this group, look at what he says. They should not be showing partiality to the wicked and thereby committing this grave injustice. They should give justice to the weak and the fatherless. They should maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. They should rescue the weak and the needy and deliver them from the hand of the wicked. And so there is this there is this dichotomy, this juxtaposition, if you will, where they are showing partiality to the wicked who are putting down and oppressing the needy and the weak and the broken. And he says that these gods, whoever they are, they are called to the opposite, that they should be so advocating for the needs and the rights and, and ministering to the the broken and the needy, so as to rescue them from the wicked hands that seek to oppress them. So, so do you see the picture? That's the judgment that he brings. That's the question that he asks. So who are the gods then? Well, the gods very simply are the authorities on the earth. They are the men whom God has appointed to positions as rulers in the most general sense, we know this to be true because of Jesus' words in John 10, 33 to 35. Let me, let me turn there. You can turn there with me or you can listen. In John chapter 10, when the Pharisees come to Jesus, telling him that they are going to, uh, that, that they are angry with him because of his blasphemy, in verse 33, it says they said to him that this is the Jews... So this is the rulers, the leaders, the religious leaders that come to him. It is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you being a man, make yourself God. In other words, he was claiming to be God. We saw that again and again and again. Claiming to be divinity, the son of God almighty as he walked on the earth. So then look at what Jesus quotes from Psalm 82. Look at verse 34. Jesus answered them and said, Is it not written in your law, I said you are God's? That's a, that's a direct quote from Psalm 82. Now he's going to interpret it. Look at what he says, verse 35. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, 
Do you say of him who the father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the son of God? What's he saying? That if these rulers to whom the word of God has come, and that's going to help us to get a little more specific of who's being referenced in Psalm 82, but whom God's providence and blessing and sovereignty has come upon so as to be appointed to a position of authority, if these men, who according to God's appointment have been given to these positions of authority, how much more should his unique and only begotten son be honored in his position of authority? So that if the men who are rulers can be referred to in some sense as gods, why is it inappropriate for the God of gods, Jesus Christ, the incarnate God of glory, why is it inappropriate for him to claim to be God, that's Jesus' own argument, so he's interpreting a little bit Psalm 82. So in the most general sense, he's speaking about all authorities and rulers, and that they have been appointed so by God. Look, Romans Romans 13, 1 1 through 7, Paul's language. Romans 13, verses 1 through 7, he says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Why? For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear for one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. And, and, and Paul's argument continues. One thing that we can understand from that is that rulers, even in an earthly sense, gods in an earthly sense, maybe they think they're gods, maybe the people viewed them as gods, they viewed Caesar as a god, but these gods in some sense, they have only been given their authority and their rulership by the god. Okay? And so these, these rulers, in the most general sense, I think more specifically... He's speaking about the rulers appointed over God's people. It's why Jesus said in John 10, those to whom the word of God has come. So that he's speaking about the kings in this passage, the judges in this passage, those that were going to continue the kingly line of David and ruling over God's people. They were not all righteous and they did not all act justly with God's people. And so these gods that are being spoken of are the men that God has appointed as rulers. And these rulers then evidently have been judging unjustly and showing partiality to the wicked and failing to go with Christ in a metaphorical sense, not that Christ had yet come, but to go with God who has compassion and concern for the weak and the needy and the fatherless and the destitute, to go with him to them and advocate for them and minister to them and actually protect them and deliver them from the hands of the wicked. So there is then this design, this divine assignment that we're given. They are being called to do this, and they are going to be called to task for not doing this. And I'm, I'm going to come back to this, but let me just say briefly, why then, even if our capacities are different, even if our authorities and responsibilities are different and more limited than the rulers that God has appointed and put in those positions, why should we think that if it is of 
utmost concern for God, as we see in his son on earth, the incarnate God, Jesus, and as these rulers are going to ultimately be held accountable and taken to task for not doing this, friends, why on earth should we think that this should not be of paramount importance for God's people? That this assignment does not only come to these rulers, it comes to each of us. The divine assignment. And for this divine assignment, there will be a divine judgment. That's verses 5 through 7. Look at, look at what it says. So he asks them, why, how long are you going to continue this? He gives them what they are not doing, the evidence, if you will, the indictment against what they're not doing. And then here's the verdict. Look at verse 5. Speaking of these gods, these rulers, these authorities, they have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. Okay, so so the first thing there, the verdict is, they walk about in darkness. Right? God is the light. He sends his light into the world. But the darkness does not love the light. Right? So that there is this light and darkness, this play on this reality. And Jesus declares that these rulers who are committing these injustices against the needy and the destitute, it is evidence of their continual walking in darkness, that they have not knowledge nor understanding. Friends, I don't know about you, but I do not want that to be the verdict that God renders against me and against our church and against his people, that they continue to walk in darkness That they don't have knowledge, they don't have understanding, that their eyes have not been spiritually opened, that they have not taken the gospel appropriately, all because they have failed to give attention to this group of people and to this deep, compassionate concern that God has for the needy. Let us love the things that God loves. Jesus declares in his own ministry, I have come to do only the will of the one that sent me. My question is, do our lives reflect that desire? Or do we have lots of other things that come from lots of other places that fill our prayer life and our concerns and our desires where we want to be doing? And there's a lot of other things that we're called to be doing, but we cannot forsake this reality as well. So then look at verse 6. So that they're in darkness, they don't have knowledge, so that the foundations of the earth are shaken because of their injustice. I'm just trying to help you see it's strong language in the judgment God renders. And then here it comes, look at what he says. I said... You are gods. He could be speaking sarcastically a bit. You think you're gods? You know, I've put you in a position where people regard you as gods. He could simply be literally just affirming that in some sense you are gods in an earthly sense. Not 100% sure, but then look at what he says. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Their their crime, their transgression is made all the more wicked and horrific before God because of this reality. Not only did God put them in their position and appoint them to their power and send them their marching orders, they are sons of the Most High. Probably, again, rulers over God's people to whom the word of God has come. God's special grace and special provision and special blessing has been upon them in a way that it has not been for all people at large. And they are the ones who stand unwilling and not ready to perform the duties to protect those that God is interested in protecting to meet the needs of the destitute and the broken. And so what does he say? Nevertheless, like men, you shall die. 
your gods. My word has come to you. My special blessing has come upon you. Because of your transgression, death is also coming. It's strong, strong language. Nevertheless, just like any other man, you're going to die. Like any prince, it says in verse 7 of the second part, you will fall. So that this authority you enjoy, this position that you overlord over the people that I've put under you, your unwillingness to acknowledge my concern and my calling and my compassion, your, your inability or your lack of desire to perform the duties that I've given you, friends, it's a death sentence that God renders to them. Your God's son of the most high, the, the word of God has come to you and my blessing has been upon you. And yet you stand obstinate, arrogant, thinking that you're somehow better than the destitute in your society. You're not ministering to them. You're not reaching to them. You're not taking the gospel to them. You're not providing for them. You're not protecting them from the wicked. In fact, you're showing partiality to the wicked that lorded over them. And he says, for it, death is coming. For it, death is coming. Friends, let that not be the testimony of our church. There's a divine assignment. There's this divine judgment. But this psalm ends with an informed prayer, an informed prayer. So in light of this courtroom setting, the assignment, the transgression, not, not doing what they were assigned, the task that they were assigned, the judgment that God renders, look, look at what the psalmist then prays. It's almost as if you can just see him, he just sighs in sadness and he says, Arise, O God. You, you who are the God over these rulers, rise up. And judge the earth. So, so the first thing he cries out for is the ultimate judgment of God to come. Do not tarry, but come quickly. Fix the injustice. Bring your judgment upon the wicked and those that seek to oppress the destitute. How long, you know, almost as if, you know, God asked these, how long are you going to judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? It is almost as if the psalmist is asking God, how long are you going to allow the wicked to continue to do this? Rise up, O God, and come and deliver. Let your judgments be sure and fast. But then the second part of his prayer, look, for you shall inherit all the nations. It's astonishing. Arise, O God, and judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. You know why? It's so important to God. And, and as the psalmist seems to understand here, that when God does come, he will judge those that put down the destitute and the fatherless and the weak and the broken and fail to show the compassion of God to them and to give them a special place in, in their ministry, in their prayer life, in their heart. You know why? His judgment is coming to those that act that way because they are part of God's inheritance that he has set aside for himself. That the weak and the broken, listen, are the only ones that God brings into his kingdom. How did you get into the kingdom? How did I get into the kingdom? Because in our brokenness and in our state of utter destitution, God sent Jesus to do this for us. Not to lord over us, not to press us down, not to... Not to forsake us and show partiality to the wicked, but to advocate for us and ultimately to die for us, the broken and needy. Christ said, I have not come for the well, but for the sick, because they are in need of a physician. Friends, do you see the psalmist understands 
that God is bringing this judgment against those who oppress the destitute and the broken because they do not understand the gospel. Because the broken and the destitute are God's people. And he is gathering an inheritance for himself, a people reserved for himself from eternity past, that he set aside for glory, that he has gone far to get, that he gave his son to redeem, and he is coming to get them. And if you do not look after the broken and the destitute, you are forsaking the people of God. Do you you see the importance then? Friends, you once were broken and destitute, fallen a transgressor at enmity with God. And it was in that state of insubordination that God came for you. Friends, let's have the compassion of God that was expressed to us in the person of Jesus when we look out into the culture and we see people that are broken, that that are fatherless, that are weak, that are widowed, that are destitute, that have nothing. Friends, and let us, as God did for us, give out of our abundance to them and to advocate for them. Let let this be a a crucial part of our ministry. Friends, it's a divine assignment. We're called to this task. We're called to this task, and it should be important to us. I'm going to give you three practical reasons. You ready? One, as I've just said, because ultimately these people to whom we are called to minister, they are a part of God's inheritance for himself. The inheritance that he has set aside for Jesus, his only son, that he promises to give to him, it includes only the broken. Secondly, it reflects our own understanding of the gospel. If we are unwilling and unable to give out of our abundance to reach the broken and the destitute, then we do not understand that all are fallen, all are wretched, all are destitute and weak, and the gospel is only for those who are sick. Friends, it shows when we go out of compassion and mercy and give out of our abundance to reach those that are broken and fallen. It shows that we understand by necessity in the gospel that we are not better than they are. See, a failure to go to them, a a failure to protect them and to deliver them is an arrogant statement about your own righteousness, that you somehow think you're better than they are. So first, it's their part of God's inheritance. Secondly, it reflects our understanding of the gospel because we're fallen and we're not better than they are. Also under that category, if you will, it reflects our understanding of the gospel and that um, we understand, you know, so many people don't go, to, don't go to the outcasts in society because they don't have it all together, do they? What did they have to bring and to offer? Friends, what did I have to bring and offer? The gospel is not for those that have it together. God says, come to, come to me and I'll get it together. Uh, I cannot tell you, maybe the number one answer that I'm given in ministry when I try to get people back into church, well, why don't you come to church? Why don't you come listen to the gospel? Why don't you come listen to the word of God preached? Why don't you come sing with us? You know what they tell me? Maybe the number one answer is, I can't go into a church. You don't know the stuff that's going on in my life. Friends, we have projected an image that the gospel of those that got it all figured out. You go get your life together. You go get your finances in order. You go get your addictions dealt with. You go get everything in order and then come to Christ. That is not the gospel. And when we go to those that do not have it figured out, we reflect an understanding that the gospel is for those that have it all out of whack. And we want Jesus and his miraculous restoring power to fix it for them. 
That's the gospel, and that, we can reflect that in going to them. Thirdly, it is a way that we identify with God's plan and purpose in his kingdom. It is a way for us to identify. Jesus said he came to do the, the, the will of, of God who sent him. Who are we to have any different motive? If it is so clear in Scripture that God is extremely interested in the lives of the broken and destitute, why, oh why, would God's people not reflect that same desire? We can identify with God's very own interest in that. I mean, even in this psalm, God is extremely angry with the rulers whom he has blessed, that he has given in abundance to whom the word of God has come, that do not acknowledge and care for this group of people. He is angry with them. He is giving a death sentence to them. Friends, let let that not be us. So what does it mean to care for this group of people. And and I just want to give a couple of caveats here. And I have to be very careful. I I don't do politics. I don't keep up with politics. I can't really change politics. I vote. People ask me political questions all the time. I don't know the answer. Politics is complicated and people have really strong opinions. I don't have time to fight over politics. And I certainly don't do politics from the pulpit. But you can testify to that. When have you ever heard me take up a political issue and tell you what you should or shouldn't do or think? I I don't, it's, it's hard enough for me to deal with the scriptures and with the gospel. Now, I think that the scriptures and the gospel should inform our political decisions. But it doesn't make, it doesn't make them necessarily easy. So, so what does it mean that we are to give out of our abundance, that we are to go to great length to minister to this group? What does it mean? Well, it means that everyone, uh, what does it not mean? It does not mean that we are to view everybody in every culture, in every society as perfectly equal, and that we should all have everything equally. In other words, what I'm not advocating, and I do not believe the scriptures to be advocating, that we have to go to those who are broken and destitute and fatherless and make sure that they have the exact same things that we have or that we have the exact same things that other people have. Listen, that cannot be supported from the Bible. It is clear from scripture that people had more and people in God's providence had less. Notice that material blessing is never spoken of in this. That yes, they're destitute, but God calls them to justice, to maintain their rights, to rescue them from the hand of the wicked that oppresses them. Not necessarily that they would enjoy all of the material blessing. Friends, sometimes it is the removal of material blessing and even of social, uh, you know, relational blessing. It is sometimes the removal and the absence of that that helps to bring us to a place of repentance in our life. That does not, however, mean that we should think we're better than those people, that we should lord it over those people, that we should not minister to and reach those people, and that we cannot even meet their needs and give them material blessing out of our abundance. I think that's all included, but what I'm not advocating is some sort of, you know, communist structure where we just, we just do everything, every, everybody's equal, and, and, and everyone has to be equal, and we're going to do everything to make it equal. I don't think that's what the scripture is implicating. What it also does not mean, as I said a moment ago, that every political and governmental and military issue is going to be straightforward and easy. What I mean is so that if you look out in the world, you know, and, and, and just because someone is hurting or in need, that the answer is, let's go fix it. It's just not that easy. I mean, when we think about, I mean, I, friends, I will confess to you, one of the most difficult subjects right now in America for Christians, I don't know if you've ever thought about it, is the issue of the illegal immigrants in our country. It's not that easy. You may think that it is. And if you do, let me encourage you to think this way. What about the illegal alien children that in God's providence and in their 
state of complete and utter helplessness and destitution find themselves across our border? Really? Do Christians just ship them back to the squalor that they came from? Is there some way that we can instill the gospel in them and take advantage of the opportunity that God's given us? But isn't there the other side? We can't do things as a country that leaves our own country destitute. We can't endorse a policy that's not sustainable economically. Friends, I'm I'm not telling you what to do. (laughs) What I'm telling you is it's not that easy. It is not that easy. When you think about foreign aid, you know, military uh, battles and, and wars overseas, when you think about in other countries, one geopolitical or military political group that is oppressing another or is putting down a, a religious group or a minority or the weak and the oppressed, that should, that should garner a response from Christians. Though, though, it, though it doesn't make it easy, what it does mean and what it does do is that we must be asking the question in all of those situations, whether they're societal, personal, or governmental, or political, how can we as Christians honor God's word and his imperative to us to give compassion and concern for these groups of people in the decisions that we make. We must ask that question. We cannot simply look out for our pocketbook, you know, for our security. It does mean that we must strive for justice and fairness and grace when dealing with the fatherless and the weak and the broken. It also means that we must go to great length to protect them from injustice and to protect them from oppression of the wicked. We must do that. We must have a heart of compassion to accomplish that task. Let me give you some ways. How can we do that? Well, first and maybe most importantly, we can take them the gospel. We can take the gospel to the ones in our society and in our world that seem unlikely candidates that nobody else is interested in. Friends, when you go to the broken and the destitute and and you bring the gospel to them and you want to bring them into the kingdom of God, you know what's so mind-boggling to the world about that? Because those people have nothing to offer the church. They have nothing to offer God, but even practically, they don't have any money to bring to your church. They don't they, they have nothing to offer you. Their life is in shambles. Their life is a mess. But the call of God is most preeminently that those are the people that Jesus is after. And we must go to the most unlikely candidates that seem like they have absolutely nothing to offer. And we can accomplish this in part by taking the gospel to them. The second way we can do it is we can indeed and should give out of our abundance materially to help those who don't have any in abundance. Guys, I don't know your financial situation, but I know, I know this. Every single person in this room is blessed beyond measure when compared to the majority of the rest of the world. Shame on me and shame on us and shame on God's people for not honoring the compassionate concern of Christ by giving out of our abundance more than we do to meet the needs of those that do not have an abundance. But thirdly, we can sincerely pray as the psalmist does in verse 8. We can sincerely pray for God's good hand of blessing, his steadfast provision, and his salvation to be upon the broken. Now think about that. The psalmist is praying that God would arise and judge the earth, that his judgment would be brought on those who are, who are committing injustices against this group, and that he will bring about 
all the nations, these, this group, he will bring from all the nations part of this group as an inheritance for himself. Friends, does your prayer life include prayers for the good hand of God's blessing and faithful provision and salvation for the homeless? For those who exist in extreme poverty? For the widow? For the terminally ill? For the nursing home resident that can't even remember the last time a family member or friend came to see them? For the mentally incapacitated or handicapped? For the physically unable? I mean, just, just, I'm just encouraging you this morning. Reflect back over this week, the last two weeks, the last month, this year. When was the last time that you prayed that God would bless those people? That his good hand of blessing would be upon him. That his steadfast love would come to them. That his salvation would be brought to them. In their tent. On their train track. In their mentally incapacitated state. When was the last time? Those are easy. Let's go to the next group. When was the last time, though, that you prayed for the addict who's in their position because of their own sin? Or for the mother who sells her body on the street to provide for her children? Or for the criminal in the cold jail cell that God's good hand of blessing would be upon them? That he would provide for their needs? That his steadfast love would overtake them and save them? We have an opportunity, no, we have a responsibility to go to these people with the gospel, to provide for them out of our abundance, to pray for them fervently, to protect them from injustice when we are made able, and to show the power of God at work restoring the broken and making them whole again. We must, we must be filled with God's compassion for the broken. I'm going to close with a quote from James Montgomery Boyce in speaking about this passage and so many Christians that have over the years tried to argue that this prayer that the psalmist prays should not be prayed by God's people and that this is not what it's teaching. Listen to what he says. He says, is this a prayer for God's intervention in history and what we call the last judgment when he will pour out his wrath upon all evildoers? Probably. But it is also a prayer that justice might be done by God through his people who, whatever the failure of the civil rulers may be, nevertheless are called to show mercy and exercise justice in the sphere of their more limited influence and to the extent of their own responsibility. This is a challenge for what each of us can do. We must not avoid it. I say that we had better pray this prayer, he says, and that we had better act justly and act for justice too. Friends, let us be filled with the compassion of Christ for the fatherless, the weak, the afflicted, the destitute, the weak, and the needy. And may God use us to deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Let's pray. Father, I do pray for our church at Redeemer that we would be filled with your vision for this group of people. That we would make informed decisions politically, socially, culturally, but also as a community that ministers to others. That we would make biblically informed decisions about how to meet these needs. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see the abundance that you've given us and that we would give graciously, sacrificially out of our abundance, specifically to meet their needs, to provide for them, 
that they might experience the love of Christ through us and his compassion. I pray for us also that we would not look beyond them, that though they seem like unlikely candidates, we would be filling your church with the broken and the destitute, with the criminal and the addict, the homeless, the mentally ill. God, I pray finally that you would help us to pray for them, that we would sincerely enough love and have compassion for them that our prayer life would reflect it, that we would go before you on their behalf, that we would intercede for them who cannot intercede for themselves, that you would bless them, and ultimately that you would save them. Father, give us this vision, and then help us to put it into practice. Over the next year, may we be a church that is found meeting the needs of this group of people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.